0: Welcome to our Impact Wave podcast series, Making an Impact. I'm Karen Tellamelli and my guest today is Erdin Aruch. Erdin is an adventurer and explorer. He's the first to complete a solo circumnavigation of the world by human power, the first to row three oceans, the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian, holds 17 Guinness World Records, Received the 2013 Citation of Merit from the prestigious Explorers Club and is one of the 2013 Adventures of the Year by The Outside Magazine. Ayrton, welcome and please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, you have done a wonderful summary of <laughs> an introduction about me. Uh, <laughs> I am an outdoor athlete, a former engineer. Um, Still active, trying to set new records,
0: He's Yeah, in, I'm... <laughs>
1: totally uh, enamored with the life on the ocean solo challenges, human power challenges, and uh, trying to do good in the world by serving an educational mission as I do all of these, um, trying to raise awareness about plastic pollution in the ocean is my recent cause and I'm trying to get that message out into schools and general public as I draw some attention by the media with what I do. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah.
0: Well, it's pretty impressive. All, all you do as an adventure, but also the causes and, um, you know, I noticed you are one of the leading ocean rowers in the world. But you did not start out to be an explorer, as you mentioned. You hold degrees in engineering and an MBA. So how did you come to be <laughs> this leading adventurer?
1: I was physically active for a long time, starting at age 11 when my father took me up my first mountain climb. I considered myself a mountaineer. From then on, it just uh, stayed active. Uh, I was active as a wrestler in high school, placed second place in, um, wrestling championship among all American high schools in Europe.
0: Oh my word. <laughs> and, uh,
1: was vying for, uh, a place in a professional wrestling team as in, as in, uh, uh, freestyle and Olympic wrestling. They had a wrestling league in Turkey. So I was vying for that. I placed second in strictly inter- in intercollegiate, uh, wrestling championships in Turkey. So anyway, uh, I was, uh, always active and mountaineering became part of my, uh, lifestyle on weekends. I would venture out to, uh, crags to do my climbing. Any break I had, I was out there uh, away from the office. So I was a weekend warrior. So daydreaming came naturally to me, tracing my finger across a map while working in a software development lab uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland Uh, was natural, wondering whether I could travel these distances between continents by human power. So this idea uh, that I could go around the world by human power started in 1997, just tracing my finger across a map. And eventually, uh, I committed in 2002 after I lost a friend while rock climbing together.
0: Yeah, th- that's amazing how huh? th- these adventures started out of a tragedy, but you know, what, what a tribute to, to your dear friend.
1: Yeah, his name was Joran Krop. He had bicycled from Sweden to Nepal in 1996 and climbed Everest. He was known for that. I had read his book, Ultimate High, about that journey. And when he came for a presentation to Seattle in the summer of 2001, I shared my ideas with him. And his two questions to me were, when are you starting? Do you have sponsors? He was asking the tough questions. When are you starting is a very loaded question (laughs) for a... uh, Land lover who was stuck in a career path and paying mortgage and had other commitments and priorities, but just daydreaming. So but that's- But what an inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it started. And then when we had the chance to climb together for the first time in September, 2002 on a short climbing pitch, uh, he fell, I could do nothing. He died, and that was the turning point for me. I sat across the table with my then fiance Nancy, and I said, I must do this. Uh, I have to do this now. She goes, yeah, you must, you will. And we didn't look back. We started making choices about where we lived and how many cars we had and rearranged our finances and lifestyle so that we could survive on one income and uh, commit all other Additional resources to this journey to take me around the world by human power. So,
0: now that is an inspiration. I mean, so often you could go into despair, and you know, you you made a a tribute and and just hope filled and just endurance. It's wonderful.
1: I had a choice to hide in a corner and feel sorry for myself. It's not so much what happens to us, but what we do with that information that matters. I chose to take the baton and run. Yeah. So, on the way back from his funeral in Stockholm on the plane, I drew the world map on a piece of paper and uh, marked the highest summits on each continent except Antarctica. I said, I'm going to go around the world and climb, reach these mountains by human power and climb them, much like Yaron had Everest. And uh, that's how the tribute was born. So September is when the accident happened. November is when I started sketching the project on the proverbial napkin, back of the envelope, if you will.
0: Yeah.
1: And February 1st, I committed for the first summit. That would be McKinley in Alaska. In winter conditions, I bicycled north to Alaska February. Wow. And uh, March were spent on the road in British Columbia and Yukon. I got to Anchorage April 11th and May 1st. We were walking in, pulling sleds on the Kahiltna Glacier all the way to base camp. It took us two weeks to get to base camp. Two other friends flew in with supplies. And May 29th, that year, 2003, I stood on the summit of Mount McKinley.
0: It's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. Um, You had said you've always been active, and this started with some you know, mental challenges too, getting over a lot. I can't even imagine what it's um, like to be alone in a rowboat at sea and just for an afternoon, let alone months on end, have, have you been doing. How do you prepare both mentally and physically for these adventures, climbing summits and for um, like I said, months on end in the ocean?
1: For the ocean crossings, uh a great deal of preparation has to take place especially designing the route is critical Uh, we have data available going back 10 15 years uh, all climatological data showing winds and swells and currents that are out there so by studying these i can design a route that will start at a certain location at a given time of the year and then Uh, plan for 30 miles a day, 1,000 miles a month kind of pace to get across these mountains. I mean, uh, oceans. Mm -hmm. And I would then uh, get a sense of what to expect, statistically speaking, on the ocean. When I launch on an ocean crossing, I, of course, want to be as fit as I can be. How much of that is possible depends on how much... Uh, preparation I have to do or how much I have to uh, make time for presentations and sponsorship pursuits and media uh, challenges, Mm -hmm. all of those get in the way of training. So as best that I can prepare, I am physically ready to take on the ocean. But then I am very intentional about my time on the water each strong every stroke counts especially in the first two weeks i cannot be injured that's why i have to wait for a break in the weather pattern so that it would take me away from land and in open ocean i would be safer Mm -hmm. and uh i don't expect performance until four to six weeks into my row and after that it's a well-established routine it wow. takes three weeks to establish new habits, right? So yeah. You know, <laughs> yes. so if I get into a routine out there, I seek that routine and it becomes the new normal. So it's not that bad, actually.
0: Oh, well, something you've been doing um I think we have um, some of your tours here we could go through it's right. I, you know something rather basic like how do you um, provide for fresh water when you're literally surrounded by an ocean of salt water
1: I have desalination unit on board uh, okay. this is a purpose designed rowboat i have added features to it obviously over the years it was built in 2001 it is supplied with both that was that was used to cross the Atlantic Ocean twice before I got it in 2004. And uh, since then, 1,168 days of my life has been spent on the ocean rowing. Uh, 1,084 of that was alone on this very boat. I have 290 watts of solar power production capacity on this thing. Wow. I charge two batteries total of 200 amp hour battery capacity is what I have on board and I then run a 12 volt electrical system on the boat and my biggest power hog is my desalination unit I can produce four to six liters an hour which is just about two gallons an hour um, which is what I actually consume out there every day I use that water to reconstitute my freeze-dried foods. I would boil water using a handheld propane canister, um, handheld stove, and then add that boiled water into the freeze-dried food pouch. Let it sit for 15 minutes. I would add, you know, couscous and instant rice or uh, potato flakes, whatever. it fits, goes with the brand or type of food yeah. that I'm eating, and to add volume and calories, and that's that's the that's the uh, routine to feed myself. I I have um, nuts and raisins and craisins and few canned foods just for treats. So sliced pineapples or sliced pear, just to open and treat myself every 500 miles, and that would count as fresh food otherwise (laughs) uh, all freeze dried stuff and canned food obviously is heavy it's got liquid and metal combined so can't take too many of those and uh, so the water production is by solar-powered batteries using a desalinator use that water to rinse myself and my clothes as well so maintenance is key to have uh, a healthy skin I have to be <laughs> very mindful of uh, exposure
0: oh my gosh I would believe yes and, and I also noticed that, um, education is a significant part as you said uh, at the beginning of everything you do and the mission yes. of your nonprofit over um, around and over is to educate and inspire Um, Why did you pick um, education as the main pillar of your charity?
1: I wanted to make a difference with my journeys. It should not be a chest beating exercise, I thought. And if I could create value as I go, I would be able to reach and touch these kids early on. When I was in middle school, our teachers brought a black and white television to our Uh, in front of our building there and they said watch this and we there we were standing outside watching this tv screen trying to peer into it and we watched on black and white television the landing of apollo 17 astronauts walking on the moon and that uh, gave me the thought that i could be an astronaut but they did no follow-up exercises no questions no uh, debates afterwards and uh, the thought that I could be an astronaut vanished when I later by myself concluded that all astronauts were Americans and I was Turkish at the time and I decided I could not be so I did not even try so that's a turning point in a child's life in with children we have to show them what's possible And then show them the path as adults, we have to open doors for them, lead them along and help them find their potential. I think every child deserves that. And with my educational mission, that's part of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to expand their horizons while making them aware of all the challenges that they face. And as humanity, we are creating problems for them. We need to solve these problems collectively, and it's going to be in their lap. Once we're gone, they're going to be left with all the problems we have created for them. And they need to start thinking about these things and start getting active early in their lives toward solutions. Hopefully, they will take that lesson to heart and become active citizens to make a difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see you do this just by you're, you're living your mission and just I, what what I just took out of that too is you are going to have challenges. you are going to have bumps in the road and and how do you respond to those and the hope, whether it's climbing um, a mountain or or an ocean but I, I think but your life shows them that anything is possible to just push yourself to to that and uh, that that's that's inc- incredible. <laughs> And I don't think that, you know, people hear hear that enough. And you're living it, (laughs) you know.
1: One thing that I, one lesson that I share with children is that what I did is not extraordinary. It is out of the ordinary. It's unusual. And if they set their minds to it, they could get it done. So when I started my circumnavigation in 2007, I did not know if I could finish it. I started thinking about this in 97 didn't commit to the certain navigation until 2007 so there there was a decade of preparation and rumination and scheming trying yeah. to get this thing off the ground and eventually once I started I had to become the person who could finish it so by the time I did finish it I had become the person who had set 15 Guinness world records And historic firsts had become the first person to have rowed three oceans. So what I tell children is that they should not clip their own wings. They should not say to themselves, I can't do it. It's too difficult or any other excuse that they may come up with. Even adults do this. We just dismiss ideas and we lower our standards. We go for the low hanging fruits more than the bigger challenges that may help us redefine who we are and redefine ourselves, reinvent ourselves. And that doesn't happen without discomfort. So leaving our comfort zone and facing these challenges head on allows us to grow into the person who can get this stuff done. So if we think something is too difficult, like solving the plastic pollution in the ocean, or solving the greenhouse gas problem that we have right now. Record heat is everywhere around the globe this year, especially. And it has been increasing uh, by leaps and bounds compared Mm. to 100 years ago (laughs) or a decade ago. So uh, these are big issues, big problems that face humanity right now. How do we solve these? So unless we commit and reinvent ourselves and become the people who could get it done. uh, The trivial solutions to give up and do nothing. So often we choose the easy solution. So Mm -hmm. we have to really reframe how we take on these challenges and accept that, yes, we can get it done, but it will take some period of discomfort and commitment to change.
0: I mean, you've made such an impact on, on the record books, but it, you know I think it's your, your larger mission and, and by this education have um, an impact um, by the effect you have on other people's lives, especially these children, when it comes to um, clean oceans and, and the climate issues. And as you just mentioned, plastic pollution. I think that um, just fairly recently, there's more awareness about plastic pollution than ever before. Um, and being out in the ocean um, as you are, have you witnessed the the increased pollution and its effect on aquatic life?
1: During my circumnavigation and in later sailing and other expeditions that I have done, uh, I have found that every windward facing beach is polluted with plastics. And if we think about it, the Northern Hemisphere, the developed nations, have more per capita plastic consumption than any other nation or community out there. So we're creating a problem for the rest of the world. And just an inordinate amount of plastic escapes into the ocean. And that's only going to get worse until we rein it in and control this. The plastic stock in the ocean will continue to increase. By uh, 2040, the plastic stock in the ocean is going to get up to uh, 650 million metric tons. That's four times what it is today. So the pace of plastic production and the con- the, the, uh, the 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 pace at which the petrochemical mm-hmm. industry is pumping plastic into our uh, lives which has become an addicted uh, use the plastics mm-hmm. is an addiction basically we have elected to use plastics we can change that if we reconsider and take stock of what's going on and the harm it's doing uh, so the plastic leakage into the ocean is going to get to be 30 million metric tons by uh, same date 2040 that's three times the pace at which it's going to leak into the ocean. So uh, we have to rein this in. We have to address this. We cannot just let it run amok. Business as usual, it's not going to work.
0: The, those figures are absolutely staggering. Just um,
1: seeing it on the beaches is really uh, giving me uh, the solid sense of what is wrong with what we're doing. Uh, these plastics wash on the beaches and then stay there. It just keeps accumulating there. And of course, the same thing is happening in the ocean. We can't, it's such a vast body of water, the ocean, uh, that we can't really get a real sense of what's going on. Much of the plastic sinks. Some of it stays just under the water, under the surface. And what we do notice is styrofoam, which floats higher. And it's noticeable. And here and there, I come across styrofoam cup and a plastic bottle just because we leave the lid on it you know it floats higher it's yeah. visible um but one only has to watch a movie for example uh if you take a note and, and go see uh, albatross the com, mm-hmm. and uh, you will see such a tragic story albatross the movie albatross the film uh, just keep that in mind. and you will see the tragedy of how the albatross are impacted with plastic in the ocean. This is just looking at the Midway atoll and the albatross and their demise really. Um, their albatross go out, forage for food, what they're supposed to bring back half digested squid and other food called mm-hmm. bolus. they then re- they regurgitate that to their young and they do this in pairs obviously the one adult stays with the egg and then the young and then the the other one flies brings back bolus feeds the young and then takes charge of the roost and they take turns so if the adult comes back and it regurgitates plastic that it has collected then the young dies because it accumulates in its gut it can't pass it and if it can't regurgitate that adult dies the remaining adult is hungry has to leave the roost ah. so the egg goes cold or the young is unattended so the end result is there's a downward pressure on the albatross population on midway island and just this is just one setting yeah and just just one documentary about that one island or for the atoll so It's a very eye-opening, tragic story, but there's really no other way to shock us into action. Uh, We have to see the tragedy to be able to say, this is wrong, our business as usual, we cannot continue the way it is, so. Um,
0: Giving your experience and focus on the ocean related issues for for now many years in your view what are the um, what is the main threat that the ocean faces currently
1: well there are multiple mm-hmm. vectors of
0: yeah. Threat. <laughs> yeah that's a loaded question
1: <laughs> plastic pollution in the water yeah. is just one of the threats so just the physical presence of plastic in the ocean of all sizes uh, and sh- shapes and dimensions and mixed plastics that are in the ocean uh, is a threat. So we just talked about how the albatross pick it up thinking it's food and then they die as a result. We also have uh, microplastics and microfibers and microbeads that are floating around or right. other uh, bits of plastic that are result of larger plastics breaking down due to UV and mechanical action of the churning action of the waves Uh, all of these things are out there and they stay out there and they become actually attractants to uh, persistent organic pollutants like DDT and PCB and uh, forever chemicals and so they become these little poison pellets and smaller pieces get consumed by the fish or by, even by the krill. So if you have microbeads and krill eat that, uh, then larger populations of krill are the food for creatures like the whales, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. it just keeps circulating in the system and as, uh, these poison pills, The plastic that has gathered all these chemicals gets consumed by uh, smaller fish and the larger fish eat them and then as the apex Mm -hmm. predator we eat the tuna or whatever uh, top species that are out there that feed on the smaller uh, fish we consume that then we end up with the carcinogens in our own system uh, in our own bodies so We cannot escape this, it just keeps coming back, circulates in the system uh, to come and heap hit us. I mean, uh, who remembers the mercury poisoning that was happening in Japan in the 50s due to discharge in the water that was affecting the local populations back there, and you had disfigured offspring. And same thing is happening, uh, that low-level poisoning is continuing to happen, and As we continue to poison our own environment and create problems for fellow creatures on this earth, we are really not helping ourselves. One of the, so that's that's the, so the physical presence of plastic is one thing. The plastics becoming attractants to uh, these chemicals is another thing. And then we have ocean acidification going on because of excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We create carbonic acid As it dissolves in the water, and that that ocean acidification is creating problems for any creature out there that have shells, from corals to shrimp to krill that have that rely on an outer shell. And as the ocean becomes more acidic, they dissolve. So when they dissolve, they are no longer available as food to others. So the whole the there's mm-hmm. going to be a catastrophic failure of populations of these smaller creatures that are food to others. And right. when that happens, then our oceans will die. And when we have more plastic and more acidic or, uh, setting in the yeah. oceans uh, and we demise, we, we serve the demise of all Creatures in the water we are killing the ocean and in the long run a dead ocean is really end-of-life for all of us uh, okay. just the whales with their the way that process food and then they spread uh, their feces around on the water they help rejuvenate the ocean they help spread they uh, feed the others uh, on the ocean. They serve a purpose. They create the phytoplankton that they feed it. They serve a purpose, and as we impact their the food chain that they rely on, we are actually impacting the ecosystem that surrounds them, and it's just not sustainable. And we need to change our ways.
0: Um, with Everything, you know, there are major problems here. But I noticed, do you have um, any positive, that you know, hopeful stories? I know you're the ocean ambassador for um, the Ocean Recovery Alliance, and they're doing um, w- with Doug some amazing things um, to address uh, plastic pollution and, um, you know, other, other ocean-related issues. So yes. to, to, to leave on a hopeful note, do you see, you know, Maybe it's just the awareness and education, but some positive stories that might Well, the
1: positive stories are uh, now that we have seen how serious the problem has gotten, uh, we see more action taken to address this. So all stakeholders have to mobilize. It's not just the individuals recycling Mm -hmm. or uh, consuming less uh, instead of taking instead of going to the store and expecting a plastic bag taking to the store our own canvas bag to bring groceries home Uh, i mean those are individual solutions but we have businesses that will take action we have governments that will take action and we have international organizations taking action all of these are positive uh, trends as we see and recognize the problem we have to force a solution We have to come up with solutions. So uh, just recently, the state of California uh, sued uh, ExxonMobil, for example, for deceiving the public on hazards of plastics on how recycling could address this. And so the fossil fuel industry is on the hook right now uh, for uh, policies and... Public relations campaigns, much like the tobacco industry used to have, Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) uh,
1: that surrounds plastics and its consumptions, uh, how useful it is and how wonderful it is, uh, while hiding it's all negative impact. So there's action on that front. Um, The world's nations got together in Nairobi in February of uh, this year to hammer out a draft resolution to come up with a legally binding instrument that would be signed by all countries and that would serve to reduce plastic pollution. So internationally, there's this drive to create the circular economy around plastics. How do we, if we're going to use this, how do we make sure that we capture it at the back end and then reuse it and recycle it as it was meant to be, not as a show. So, this is a four trillion dollar market and only 10 percent of the plastic that's being generated right now by the petrochemical industry only 10 percent of that is being recovered i'm not saying recycled just recovered mm-hmm. right even yeah. if we bury it <laughs> uh, yeah. that's part of that so recycling uh, and making sure that this thing has a circular life cycle where what's been used comes back into uh, production cycle Mm -hmm. and has, and applied to other uses. I mean, there are attempts to make, um, this dirty plastic and mixed plastic into aggregate component of cement. Uh, for example, there's an attempt in, um, Costa Rica right now, center for regenerative design and collaboration has uh, come up with a way to generate cement aggregate that can put 10% of this new product called Resonate into uh, cement production and make bricks out of it and use it in construction. So that's one way to get it out of circulation and lock it in place as a useful product. That's just one example. And there are uh, other ways. this uh, legally binding instrument that we were talking about that was negotiated in Nairobi is trying to make use of an economic, environmental economic accounting uh, system that was devised in 2012. So what we're trying to do is come up with a uh, way to address the externalities that surround plastic production and consumption. So if we can Uh, put into our accounting system the cost of recycling and the cost of cleaning up all this plastic and all the environmental damage that's created by the use of plastic and the production of plastic, not to mention all the greenhouse gases produced in the production and transport of plastics. So all of these things are additional costs that never come into uh, the equation. And once produced, nobody is accountable. So there is no pay to play, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if we assign costs to all of these and incorporate that into the price of plastics, we could actually make it unaffordable to the consumer. And the consumer may decide, that's too expensive. I'm not going to buy it. And that's one way to address it. And of course, all these costs have to be turned into uh, better solutions on the production side, too. Uh, so that they can put better scrubbing systems or whatever is Mm -hmm. necessary to make the system work better. So we are due for a whole rethink of how we produce and consume these things. And I think that's the positive side. So now that we have this threat clearly identified, now we are thinking of ways to address it. Hopefully it won't be too late before we can get our act together.
0: That's that's great. Thank you for that that insight. And um, I know we're getting you know towards the near of the end of our podcast right here. What's next for you?
1: I recently took my rowboat from California uh, to the Philippines. Uh, I went from Crescent City to Hawaii in eighty days. From Hawaii to Guam in one hundred and twenty eight days, and then in another thirty days, I reached the Philippines, well, this became the first time that the Pacific Ocean was crossed from North America to Asia, Philippines being an Asian country. What I will do uh, in January uh, is to go back to the Philippines, prepare my rowboat, bicycle from one side of Luzon Island to the northwest corner of Luzon Island and relaunched from, relaunch from there by rowboat toward Vietnam.
0: Now, this is you in arriving in the Philippines after?
1: Yes, this is the uh, 24th of March, 2022. I just tied up at Legaspi in the Philippines on Luzon Island. So, this is my arrival shot just before I swim to shore.
0: Oh, <laughs> there was <laughs> another
1: dock. I had to strip down to my underwear and swim to shore, <laughs> the remaining 30 feet or so, and uh, then go through all the health department checks, show proof of my vaccination so that they would let me into the country. Uh, <laughs> and oh, that's uh, get, my, get my passport stamped and everything else that was required so that I'd be welcome. And uh, so I will return to the Philippines end of the year in January, I'll prepare the boats. In February, I will row from Philippines across the South China Sea toward Vietnam And once I get there, I will carry out the logistics of the robot, put it in a container, lock it up, and transition to my bicycle and bicycle to Portugal. So by October, 2023, hopefully, if all visas are available on the road along the, for all the countries on my route, uh, pandemic has become a big headache. So if everybody, provides me the visas so I can carry on to Portugal. I will launch from there, hopefully by the end of October this year, coming year, and row to Guyana's. I should reach there February 2024, and then I have Aconcagua to go climb as part of my six summits project.
0: Oh, that's spectacular. Well, we wish you were um, actually pleased that you will be joining us for um, a short wave series, which um, will be addressing particular issues um, along the way. But I wanna thank you very much for joining me um, today, Erdin. It was interesting and informative and always a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed our conversation, please give us a like and follow us on our channel. Hope to see you next time. Thank you, Eddie.
1: Thank you.